No, but when I was dating Irene, she only knew me as Pete. Her parents knew me as Pete. Pete, 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 Pete. See, that was my nickname. I belonged to a group of men. We call them guys, gangs now. But there was just three of us, and they gave me the nickname Pete. Why? I don't know. You probably had one. You probably don't know where it came from, but you had one. I talked to Peter one day at his home, and he said, I asked him what his nickname was. Peter, uh, what is it, Peter? Pistol Pete. Pistol Pete, yeah. I'm just plain Pete. That's all I am. I want to, you know, I mentioned this before. When God asks a question, he's not looking for an answer. He's really not looking for an answer. He most always asks a question to show us his glory in a way we never imagined. He really does. That's that illustration in the scripture we read this morning from the book of Job. God asked Job a question. He knew the answer. He wanted to show him how great the creation he made really was. And he asked him, who measured it? Who put a line across it? What holds it up? The footings. You've seen the pictures from the moon. You've seen the earth out there from the moon. What's holding it up? God is. God is always. So we can learn a lot about God by looking at the questions he asks. That is one one I want to look at today. A very important question Jesus asked of the 12 apostles. It's a very important question. And we begin in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. We read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And they replied, but then what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Wow. Think about that. You know, we see Jesus in two forms here, his humanness and his divinity. And he has a need in his human body to get away with just the 12. They got to get out of town. They want to have a time of getting together. So he withdrew to an area known as Caesarea Philippi, which is about 12 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, very far north in Israel at that time, okay? He had something very important on his mind. So it was important to get together with the 12, away from the hustle and the bustle of Jerusalem and Israel, kind of a sort of corporate board meeting, if you want to look at it that way. Jesus knew that his time on earth was short and his days in the flesh were very numbered. The problem was, was there anyone who recognized him for who and what he was 
and especially among the twelve. He had invested three years in his ministry. He knew it was going to end very soon. And Jesus wanted to know, did it do a good job? Were there anyone who, when he was gone from the flesh, would carry on his work? Obviously, that was a crucial problem for it involved the very survival of the Christian faith. It really did. Remember, Jesus is a human being with all of the emotions, fears, the unknowns we have in addition to being God in human flesh. He was both of these. So he was determined to put all to the test and ask his followers who they believed him to be. So then at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus determined to demand an answer from his disciples. He had to know before he set out for Jerusalem and the cross, and if anyone had even dimly grasped who and what he truly was. He did not ask the question directly, you notice. He led up to it. He began by asking, what do people say that I am? Okay? Some of the disciples said, well, we think they say there's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some said he was Jeremiah the prophet. And when some of, them, some of the apostles said this, the disciples identified Jesus with Elijah and Jeremiah, and they were paying him a great compliment and setting him in a very high place. For Jeremiah and Elijah were not the, one, the expected forerunners of the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And when they arrived, the kingdom would be very near indeed. Hearing this, Jesus asked the all-important question, What about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? At that question, it must have been a very long silence. While in the minds of the disciples came thoughts they were almost afraid to express in words. We've all been in those predicaments. Someone asked a question and everybody said, mm, I hope Charlie says something because I can't. Can you imagine what's going through the minds of the 12 apostles? They're all afraid to say anything. The weight of that question hit them right between the eyes. Who is he? He had to know. Contained in the answer of Peter, there are two great truths. Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's two great th truths in there. Peter found something out. Human categories, even the highest, are inadequate to describe Jesus Christ. We can't describe him. He's God. Secondly, this passage teaches us that our discovery of Jesus Christ has to be personal. Personal. Very personal. Jesus' question is, you, who do you say I am? Our knowledge of Jesus must never be secondhand knowledge. A person might know every thought about Jesus. They might know every Christian phrase might be able to give a comp comp competent summary of the teachings about Jesus and still not be a Christian. They really wouldn't. Christianity never consists in knowing 
about Jesus. It always consists in knowing Jesus personally. Jesus Christ demands a personal verdict from each and every one of us. He didn't ask only Peter. He asked every person in the world who would ever exist, you, who do you say I am? Look at the answer Peter gave to this most important question. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Was this a correct answer? Yes, it was. Because God gave it to him. But it was not the complete answer to that question. You see, Peter was short-sighted. He saw the miracles Jesus performed. He was present when he, Peter, walked on water to meet Jesus. He had seen it all. But Peter failed to process information into a very important thing. God's plan for his son and all of mankind. He was enthralled with the Messiah. He was a good friend of the Messiah. But the ultimate purpose of the Messiah was God's plan for all of mankind. <coughs> to illustrate, I'll call your attention to the following passage that take place immediately after the passage we just dealt with. Here we find the commentary Jesus gave to the foregoing statement that Peter gave to the question Jesus posed in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, where it says this. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Correct answer, no doubt about it. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hade will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Notice first Jesus gives a blessing to Peter. He really does. By telling Peter that flesh and blood didn't reveal the answer to him, but his father did, really did. But the fact is that Jesus' father revealed the answer to Peter. Remember, Jesus is just as human as you and I. I keep stressing that. We have to remember that. Jesus is God incarnate in body. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our God came in body, just like you have and I have. He lived in a body, just like this. And he had to face all of the things we face with the exception of a sinful nature. He did not have that. Okay? Simon's Peter's answer, Jesus said, was given to him by Jesus' Father in heaven. God the Father used Peter to give his son encouragement as he lived in his human body. Jesus asked the question, Peter gave the answer that God gave him. And God gave it to Peter because he wanted to encourage his son while he's here on earth living in this body. And if I can paraphrase the answer, I will paraphrase it this way. Son, you're doing a wonderful job. If I could paraphrase that. God did that for his son while he was here. If he has the same body you and I have, 
and you and I have a relation with his father, God will encourage you one day in some specific way in your humanity. He will reach down from heaven and bless you in ways that knock your socks off. He really will because he loves you so very, very much. You know, Jesus goes on from this point to tell Peter that he's a rock. And Jesus will build his church on that rock. And that passage raises several points of discussion that we'll look at briefly because the fact is, Peter is on a very high plateau right now in his relationship with Jesus. Whew, really up there. Things are going great. He's got to be on cloud nine or 10 or 11 or whatever number you want. This passage is to one of the storm centers of the New Testament scriptures. There are basically four explanations for what Jesus said to Peter. I don't want to dwell on this. I just want to point them out to you because this is not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is the answer to the question. Okay? But Peter is on cloud nine. The first exclamation is this. St. Augustine says it to mean the rock to mean Jesus himself. It is as if Jesus said, you're Peter and on myself as rock I will build my church. Secondly, the rock is the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. To Peter, that truth had been divinely revealed. Very true. Thirdly, the rock is Peter's faith. On the faith of Peter, the church is founded. If you know Peter at all, you know at this point, he had a very singular faith right now. Additionally, we know that Peter is not the one to protect the church against the gates of Hades. Only Christ fills that description as a person. We could spend ages debating this passage, but I want to get to the main point of the sermon. What we should realize at this point is that we, all of us in attendance today, belong to an institution Christ himself founded. Church. It never existed until right here. It was never in scripture. There was no church. And you and I are blessed by being in that organization, I'll call it, today, right now, worshiping the Lord. Christ promised Peter 2,000 years ago this is what he was going to do. And he'd done it. And he said the gates of Hades will not resist it. You can go to a thousand cities and a thousand countries and go to church today. Some a lot different than this, but they're church. And they all worship God. And they all worship Jesus Christ. We have much more information at our disposal now than they had at that time. Even Peter had. So let's go on in Matthew chapter 16, verses 20 through 23. Ah, uh, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wait a minute. And he said, never, Lord, 
this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only the human concerns. What's happened? Peter's on cloud nine. Funk. Down he came. He really did. This is where the rubber meets the road. Right now. Jesus begins to open their eyes to the fact that for him, there was no way but the way of the cross. There was no other way. He said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests as a scribe. He no longer had said this than Peter, who had been floating on cloud nine, reacted with seeming violence. Peter had been raised with the idea that his Messiah, his Messiah, was a Messiah of power and glory and conquest. And to him, the idea of a suffering Messiah was just incredible. Peter's Messiah was far different from the one Jesus just described. Peter loved Jesus. That's why he said what he said. But Peter was not going to bow to God's will in this matter because it didn't fit into his belief system. His belief system. It is as if he caught hold of Jesus and rebuked him. That's what Scripture says. He said, this must not and cannot happen to you. And then Peter fell out of cloud nine and landed with a thud. That's exactly what happened. We want to be very careful here, though. We must try to catch the tone of the voice in which Jesus spoke, not Peter's. He certainly did not say it with a snarl of anger in his voice and a blaze of indignant passion in his eyes. What he said was like a man wounded in the heart with a grief and a kind of shuddering horror. Why did he rebuke Peter like this? Because there came back in his mind something he remembered back in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry when Satan tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. And Luke writes about that temptation. In Luke chapter 4, 13, he writes this. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Opportunity was knocking at the door. Jesus in humanity was being tempted by Satan one more time. Again and again, the tempter launched his attack. No one wants a cross. No one wants to die in agony. Even in the garden, the same temptation came to Jesus. The temptation to take another way. Remember, he was just as human as you and I are. The same Jesus. Here, even Peter is offering an alternative route to him right now. The sharpness and the poignancy of the Jesus answer are due to the fact that Peter was urging on him the very things which the tempter was always whispering to him. The very things against which he had to steel himself. Jesus is a real human being and God incarnate at the very same time. He was tempted 
He had fears. He had all of the things we experienced. Peter was confronting Jesus with a way of escape from the cross, which in the end beckoned to him. Even Christ, the Son of God and his humanity, was not exempt from the temptations of the evil one. That's why Peter was Satan. He was acting like Satan acts. Satan literally means adversary. That's why Peter's ideas weren't good. They were man's ideas. Satan is any force which seeks to deflect us from the way of God. Satan is any influence which seeks to make us turn back from the hard way that God has set before us. Satan is any power which seeks to make human desires take place of the divine imperative. What made the temptation more acute, even harder, was the fact that it came from someone who loved him. It came from one who loved him. Peter spoke as he did only because he loved Jesus so much he couldn't bear to think of him as treading the dreadful pain and dying an awful death. The hardest temptations of all are the ones that come from protecting love. The hardest temptations of all are the ones that come from protecting love. Peter will go on to even more effort to keep his Christ from suffering. He won't give up. You know them. In the garden that night when Judas betrayed Christ, who was the only guy who had a sword in the crowd? <laughs> My man. <laughs> what did he do? He cut off the high priest servants here. He wasn't going to allow this to happen. Not at all. Not at all. He will also deny Jesus three times as he seeks to warm himself in the courtyard of the high priest. And scripture tells us after the third denial, it says Peter was at the fire and he looked up and Jesus looked at him. Just looked at him. Jesus was pierced to his very heart by what Peter did. My best friend turned back on me. And he had those same feelings that you and I have when it happens to us. After the crucifixion and Jesus' death and burial, Peter must have thought about that question. Who do you say I am? The question still stands today. What about you? Who do you say he is? Really? We're not all no longer able to keep quiet in the crowd while we hope and pray that I hope someone gives an answer. I'm afraid to speak up. Now the question is extremely personal. We must give an answer. Do you know what answer you will give to the Savior when he asks this question of you? Who do you say that I am? He will ask that of it. There will be no excuses. No excuses. The answer has been given to us in so many different ways. We have the complete word of God given to us in the Bible. We have the church of Jesus Christ that stands to this day and offers each one of us the opportunity to learn about Jesus, what he has done for us, and most importantly, why he has done so much for each and every one of us. Who do you say I am? The answer to that question determines two things. 
One, where you will spend eternity. Two, how you will live out your life here on God's earth. All of us must give an answer to that question. If you haven't answered that question, you will someday. Notice that Jesus asked the question to people who were alive and had witnessed or seen the power of the God-man. Dr. D. James Kennedy, in his Evangelism Explosion Ministry, always asked this question. When you die, and God asks you why he should allow you into his heaven, what will be your answer? Peter gave part of the answer. That was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is part of the answer. The other part, as Jesus said, is that he went to the cross. He suffered, and he died for our sins so that we could have eternal life for him, with him forever and ever in heaven. That's the complete answer to the question. Later, Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, through him, Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. And one day, we will all stand before Jesus to give an answer to that first personal question, who do you say I am? Jesus will be standing at the gate of heaven. It won't be Peter. It'll be Jesus. He'll be standing at the gate of heaven when we arrive, and if we have correctly answered that question, he will welcome us into his Father's home. If we have not answered that question while here on earth, we will have a very real problem. Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 33, Jesus said this, Whomever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Oh my gosh. Think about that. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father. You're standing before Christ. And he has said that, and it's one or the other. There is no other way, no other way. You know, one day each of us must stand before Christ and give our answer. I would urge you to do as I did one day. That is to stand before Jesus Christ in all your truth and honesty and tell him personally that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept the fact that you died for me personally to forgive my sins and that I place all my trust in that act that you accomplished for me. You must mean it from the depths of your heart. The answer must be given with heartfelt thanks and very personal for what Jesus has done for you. That's not the end. But then you begin to live your life here on earth to glorify his name in all that you do. In other words, acknowledge him before men and glorify his name so that he can acknowledge you before his Father who is in heaven. Many of us believe that 
you know, the story is Peter will be standing at the gates of heaven and he'll have a list and tell us whether or not we can enter. That's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> it really is. The one standing there will be Jesus Christ. It'll be him standing at the gate of heaven. Tell us that we have or have not answered that question by our lives and everything else. If I could urge you to do one thing today is to get serious about Jesus and about what he did for all mankind. Each one of you here this morning know about I-A-N. Ian. Because on your television or your radio or your phones or whatever means you use to call, commune with other people, someone has told you, it's on the way. It's coming. Here's a graph in the cone. You know about the cone. Could go south, north, east, or west. It's coming. And you're running around preparing sandbags, gasoline, food. Jesus Christ is coming back too. You've been told about that. Are you really preparing for that? You know about it. There's one difference. The hurricane is with or within one or two days. The return of Christ you don't know about. But you should prepare for it. You better prepare for it. You know, the truth is that he died for each and every one of us. You, me, everybody here. He died for us. And he asks us to acknowledge that fact. F-A-C-T. T-R-U-T-H. Something we have no regard for these days. But it is true and it is a fact. He, acknowledged, he asked us to acknowledge the fact and to place our faith and trust in his action on Calvary and in his resurrection from the dead. I believe the time is short for Christ's return to this earth. I believe it's very short. Many of our leading evangelists are talking about the end times these days. And you have to admit things are deteriorating. If you don't think they're deteriorating, well, go out and buy a gallon of gasoline or check of milk. You'll find things are not going the way we want them to go. The end may be very near. But that has nothing to do with it. We must be ready to receive him. He's the one that's coming back. He's coming back for us who have acknowledged him, who have said, I place my full faith and trust in what you did for me at the cross of Calvary. And because of that, I worship God. That's what Peter said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the bother but through me. Guess who's standing at the gate? You've got to go through him. You better have an answer. And the answer must be given while you're here on this earth. Because when you get to the gate, it's too late. You have to answer that question right now. Do you know who I am? And what I've done? 
and what God has planned for me to do for you. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us, that each and every one of us here would have a solid, heartfelt answer to that question that Christ answered, asked so many years ago, who do you say that I am? We must acknowledge him so that he will acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. That's my prayer for each and every one of us here today. Not for a hurricane, not for anything else, but for the day you stand before him at the gate of heaven and he asks you, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Sometimes, Lord, the questions amaze us because they show us your glory. Thank you. Thank you that you show your glory through your church, the Bible you have given to us, your son that died on the cross, and a thousand other ways. We really have no excuse. And I just pray that each and every one of us here today will be able to answer that question when we stand before you in heaven. We praise you today and thank you today. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.